0: Hello, and welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast. We are thrilled once again to share some time with you as we continue on this series of The Real People of Faith. We've had a little bit of just a change of pace in this series as we've instead of been looking at one specific person for the last few weeks, we've been looking at groups of people, and that theme is going to continue today. In our conversation, we talked about the prophets, talked about John the Baptist, I guess that's a specific person, but now we're back to talking about a group, uh, the disciples of Jesus, and this is actually a little bit more broad than what you might think. Uh, You would probably have in mind those 12 that we have recorded in Scripture— But uh, as we continue our conversation today, we're going to learn that uh, Scripture does name these disciples, though there's different names given in different Gospels. Some disciples we know more about than others, some we almost really know nothing about. And uh, actually, you can look beyond what we think of as the 12 disciples to larger themes of discipleship in Scripture, including those that follow Jesus. I mean, you would call the Apostle Paul a disciple, of course, though that wasn't Uh, what you would have in the Gospels. So uh, great themes for conversation today, and certainly a real connection to the real people of faith, so we're thrilled to have you join us.
1: Yeah, welcome. I think this is a fun conversation, Michael. It's an interesting conversation. We know a couple of things that probably help us backdrop to this conversation. We know that 12 is a significant number. Mm -hmm. There is this group of disciples within a broader group that is referred to as the 12, And that's a direct comparison or direct connection to the 12 tribes of Israel, that Jesus has 12 disciples. What's interesting is that the various gospels give some of them different names, and and there are arguments to be made within scholarship circles as to whether they're naming the same men in every case or not. There is some school of thought that they're making a case for different people being within the 12. And and the reason that could be possible is that we know Jesus has more than 12 followers. There's a fairly large group of people who would consider themselves disciples. They're mm-hmm. followers of Jesus. They follow him around. They support his ministry. They support him. And yet, within that bigger group, there there is this identification of the 12. And it could be... That there are disagreements about who is actually in it when you kind of get to the fringes. There's really no argument about the core. I would say probably, what would you say, 9 of the 12, 10 of the 12. Mm -hmm. And one simple explanation is that they have some different names. They go by different names. We'll talk about why that might be the case. Scripturally, we talk about the 12 disciples and for our purposes, we will probably try to combine names when we think they may apply to the same individual. And so what I think is interesting about this conversation to start with, Michael, before we get into the particulars of any individual, is that the one thing these men certainly have in common is that they're not on anybody's must draft (laughs) list. They're They're not... attached to other rabbis. You know, it, it's possible um, Andrew, for instance, may likely have been a disciple of James the Baptist at, at some level or a follower of James the Baptist. But other than that, these aren't men that are uh, particularly special in, in any way. And so the first thing that I think is really of interest is that in looking for this inner circle... Jesus fishes from very ordinary ponds, and he calls to him men without exception who are not considered anything special by the world they live in.
0: Yeah, well, some of the men he calls, of course, are professional fishermen, and when you have someone whose very job is the business of knowing the most efficient ways of catching fish— you know that fundamentally these are not the guys you want fishing for people. The very thing that Jesus says he's going to send them out to do, that, you know, these are not the people who are going to be orators. They're they're not trained in going out and doing public speaking. They're probably faithful men who go to uh, worship, but they're not going to be those who are going to be asked or called upon to teach Scripture. The what would be our Old Testament. So when Jesus calls these men, it is very much a nod from the very beginning that Jesus's intent is to glorify God. In other words, anything that comes of those disciples' work is not something that could be pointed to towards their own pedigree, towards their own skill set towards their own training. Uh, Instead, what happens because of the faithfulness of these disciples, uh, God gets the credit for it.
1: Yeah, and maybe connected to point number one, that they're not particularly desirable from a worldly perspective, is point number two, the most consistent thing reported about the disciples in the Gospels is that they rarely get it right. (laughs) right. They are very human. especially if you read the way this story unfolds pre- and post-resurrection, the pre-resurrection disciples, to to be honest, they almost never nail it. They almost always misunderstand Jesus. Jesus chides them for having lack of faith. They ask inappropriate questions. They have doubts. They, They cannot seem to be able to get where Jesus wants them to be. And they're very fallible. And this becomes, I think, an invitation to all of us. But it is, um, it is another interesting way that their story is told, not as successful, not as brave and courageous and the kind of tenacity we see in Jesus. They're, they are very ordinary in in fact, their batting average is probably not very good, to be honest.
0: Yeah, take someone like Peter, who we know because of Acts is a significant leader in the early church after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and you figure that if you look at the Gospels, I think you can make a case that Peter has at least the most – at least equal to the most number of stories, if not the most number of stories of a disciple in the New Testament. And if you take the weight of those, Peter doesn't look like a very wise, thoughtful, cautious individual. He doesn't look much like a leader, to be frank. He looks a lot like a a bumbling guy trying to impress Jesus and make an impact on the world. And if you figure that Peter has a significant authority role in the early church— he clearly didn't exert a lot of influence trying to edit the story. He didn't go back and try to push the writers of the Gospels to make him look good in it. Really, he he comes off looking pretty weak, and I think that's actually a testament to what the disciples writ large, if you look at all twelve, as much as we have about them. It seems that they were far more interested in making that connection to faithfulness to Jesus than their own personal ability, their own personal gifts or charisma. In in other words, this wasn't a movement of these 12 people who were extraordinarily gifted and went out to change the world. It was these 12 normal individuals, in fact, in some cases, backwater individuals who met the most significant person He transformed them, and suddenly they were lit on fire with this good news that they saw and they wanted to share.
1: Yeah, and I think that, again, one of the things we see in that is the humanness of these men, real people. And to their credit, there are rarely instances where they disobey Jesus. They just don't understand Jesus. They often try to do what Jesus has told them to do. They just have a way of mucking it up with their own stuff, with their own assumptions, with their own preferences. And I think that's one of the things that make their story so compelling, that these are the men in the, in the trenches with Jesus. For the three years of his ministry, they're with him day in and day out, season after season, they see the miracles, they see the exorcisms, they they hear the preaching, they hear the lessons, and yet it often doesn't sink in through their thick heads until they finally, ultimately, not only see what Jesus was actually talking about in giving up his life and being resurrected, but more importantly, till they're gifted with that gift of the Holy Spirit. And upon that moment, they're able to really start implementing the things that they've seen and heard in Jesus. So it's it's a, it's a an invitational kind of story to the rest of us who, as much as we might try, often get it wrong as well.
0: The central theme that goes throughout the Gospels as it connects with the disciples is this theme of faith and doubt. And It's interesting because the Gospels were clearly written, each by differing authors and to differing communities, but they share this concern that we know that even those closest to Jesus struggled with doubt about who he was and not even just who he was, but what that meant. And I think it's very comforting for those who live thousands of years later who in many ways struggle to relate to the time and nature and tenor of the stories that we find in the New Testament, it's good news for us when we sometimes walk our own tenuous journeys of both faith and doubt to recognize that these simple men who were within arm's distance of Jesus, who saw him, who ate with him, who followed him, who talked with him, that these same people who in many ways I think we can relate to for for sometimes just not getting it, these men found in Jesus someone who they couldn't not follow, a, a person who transformed them in really fundamental ways. And so, I think As we come to them in their stories, it's both relatable in the sense that these are real people who had real jobs, that had nothing to do with professional clergy or institutional church, and yet they saw in Jesus someone who transformed everything, and they become the witnesses that invite us to see him. And
1: they left those jobs. They temporarily, at least, left whatever family situations they Mm -hmm. might have been in. They did that. They made that decision in many cases on the spot. The text often says immediately they followed him. And for that, we have to praise them and give them credit because there were many who didn't. And these men really staked their life on the faith that they put immediately in Christ, even if they didn't always understand what it asked of them and what it led them to be and do in the short run i think in the long run we we might find otherwise but maybe the thing to do michael maybe we just jump in we talk about each one for a few minutes and kind of share what we know of their stories um, the thing that's interesting as you look at the disciples so much of their narrative comes from outside of the bible the, the bible tells us a little bit in many cases it turns out church tradition adds a lot to the story. Now, how reliable some of those traditions are has been debated, but we will, as we go through this, if we appeal to any of those traditions, we will try to let you know that we're outside the parameters of of the New Testament and we're into church history or church tradition. And probably, Michael, the place we have to start is Peter.
0: Right. Yeah. So you may know Peter as Simon, uh, we know Peter as Peter because Jesus called him Peter, which that name means the rock. Jesus says that you are the rock upon which I will build my church, which if you know anything about Peter, is an ironic statement because he's hardly a rock-like character in the gospel. In fact, he's more like shifting sand. He seems to be uh, in different places, both emotionally and politically and spiritually at differing times. But once again, and I don't want it at all sound critical of him, the text really— exudes this sort of uh, almost um, – it's very generous to Peter, right? Peter doesn't get it. Peter's brash, but he's always trying. He's never hard-hearted or he's never seeking foolishness. That's just the road that he finds himself on.
1: Yeah, and also I think the the scripture is mindful that Jesus pays him the great compliment of saying – You are Peter, the rock, and on the rock, I'll build the church, and you'll have the keys to the kingdom. Peter is considered by the Catholics the first bishop of Rome, effectively the first pope or the paradigm for popes. He's confident. He's brash. He is the first to voice that truth of Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you're the Christ. Unfortunately, he then immediately proves he doesn't understand what that means, but he is sincere. He's often misguided. He's not courageous as we encounter him in the Gospels. I I think he talks a better game than he plays. Mm. But when we get to the book of Acts, again, with the gift of the Spirit and the hindsight of understanding all of those things Jesus tried to tell him, he stands out as incredibly brave, confident. He is an outstanding preacher. He is an outstanding missionary. He is in many ways the leader of the early church, especially in its, in its infancy and in its first evolution. And he stands apart in that. And so many of those things are foreshadowed, in the Gospels, but not really do they come to fruition until we see him in the book of Acts.
0: Yeah, I think a paradigm for me of of who Peter is uh, comes to us uh, in the story of the Transfiguration, Clint, Mm -hmm. I think because here you have this moment where Jesus is up on the mountain and he is literally transformed before the eyes of some of these core this inner circle of disciples, Peter is among them. And Peter, seeing that something really remarkable has happened, says, you know, Lord, it's good for us to be here, and if you want, I'll make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and for Elijah, these two great pillars of the Old Testament appearing on either side of Jesus. And it is just so is so much Peter that this is he sees something happening. He knows it's significant, and he goes with his gut that we need to do something in response to it. The unfortunate thing is he chooses the wrong thing. That God doesn't need a house made on earth. That God literally took on a living tent. He became enfleshed on earth, and that is Jesus Christ, and that is. That's, I think, the invitation for those of us who are seeking to learn from what it means to be a a real person of faith is that we oftentimes do see God working, and our temptation can be to sort of jump in and to fix it or to run it or to control it, and Peter does that in lots of different ways, and the invitation that comes to us is maybe to just step back and to try to listen, try to learn, to try to let god uh speak into our lives in meaningful ways before we rush to action and go inevitably the wrong direction.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it was a few weeks ago in our David podcast Michael, we talked about the reality of your strengths being your weaknesses and I think that's true. Peter is quick to to leap in. He he wants to be in the front, he wants to grab the reins, he wants to do well and and do the right thing and be involved in it and that often just leads him to the wrong place, you know, speaking when he should be listening and saying the wrong thing and, and going off sort of half prepared. And w- we see that, especially in the Gospels. In the book of Acts, it's subdued a little, although hmm. he and Paul do get in some conflict over how Peter has treated the Gentiles. And at least as Paul tells it, Peter is slow to come around to the truth that Jesus has opened the gates of salvation even to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul accuses Peter of some hypocrisy, though, in fairness, the the book of Acts is extremely pro-Paul. And so whether there's more to the story or not, I think you would have to argue that out. Tradition holds that Peter is eventually martyred. And as a sign of his humility— and in some ways, contrary to the stories of him in the gospel, the, the, the tradition is that he requests to be crucified upside down. And so the symbol of Peter is an upside down cross. In some churches, you will see a, a cross that's, that's inverted, and that's often called Peter's cross, and it has to do with that story that he felt unworthy to share the same kind of death of Jesus So he asked if he could do it upside down, and they let him for whatever reason.
0: Before we move on from Peter, I I think it's worth just making note of the fact that Peter was undoubtedly one of the linchpin leaders of the early church. Mm -hmm. Without Peter's administrative leadership, without Peter's proclamation, which we see in the very early chapters of Acts, without Peter having some of that get in the middle, get moving, take charge, it's, you know, you can't speak in hypotheticals of what would have happened. But Peter is, as history turns out, one of the significant bearers of the gospel, and it is because of him in many ways that the church exists as it does today. So, let's not come across as if we're critiquing Peter too much, or at least I don't want to from my own comments. I just think that, once again, as you said well, Clint, there's both strength and weakness in it, and it turns out that very much his weakness was redeemed as strength in his leadership role in the early church.
1: Yeah, without a doubt, Michael. In fact, in the book of Acts on Pentecost, it's Peter that preaches, and it says 3,000 people responded and and came to Christ that day, or were baptized, or joined the faith, and you know that that's an amazing statistic, and certainly a credit to Peter's leadership. I, it, it's hard to see the early church leaving its first few years, making it through those challenges without Peter's leadership, hundred percent. Well, that brings us. Uh, we, we there are different orders we could go to, but maybe just in terms of the the biggest amount of stories and maybe impact through the Gospels. I, we'll go to John next, uh, sometimes called the Beloved Disciple, as he seems to refer to himself in the Gospel that bears his name. Uh, in many ways, uh, an opposite to Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, John seems to be more reflective, more philosophical. He seems to be somewhat more reserved. He has a, a deep faith, like Peter, but is it fair to say, Michael, it's a, it's a more contemplative faith, or at least it's a faith that is not rushing ahead, but asking the meta question, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. And he, he seems constantly to be involved in trying to sort out those questions.
0: If you were to read John's gospel, as many of you did in our 90-day New Testament project, you're going to find that that fourth gospel has a completely different tone. And I'm not even Mm -hmm. talking about the stories included or not included. The tone of that letter is one such that Jesus in his teaching, especially in the upper room section towards the middle, late middle of that book, is just unbelievably word-filled. You can see the person who wrote that as sort of sitting in the room and just absorbing the words, the the knowledge, the wisdom that Jesus has to offer. Peter, very much you get this impression of a person ready to take action. John, you get this impression of someone who's soaking in what Jesus is saying, and not just sort of in an intellectual way, though I think you could say that that's there, but also in very much a spiritual way. If you've ever known one of those people for whom spiritual connection, prayer, devotion comes easily, that's the impression I get when I read John. And that's not explicit. That's more of just a feeling I have as I read passages about him or things written by him. But John's the kind of guy who can come into a room and I think he sits quietly, he listens, he's faithful, he's devoted, he follows Jesus. And if he was ever given the title Beloved Disciple by Jesus, I think it's understandable why.
1: Yeah, you have the the vision of John being a person who kind of sees behind the thing. He's that yeah. he's he embodies that wisdom. Uh much of the gospel is is kind of esoteric. Some of it is it will leave you scratching your head, but spiritualists mm-hmm. do that, right? They mm-hmm. that's kind of their gift and we all try to catch up with them and uh, John is responsible, we think, for writing the gospel. There are three letters that bear his name. There's some dispute over that. But then also the book of Revelation, which, again, if that's accurate, very much would be in keeping with a kind of spiritual discernment, understanding, big picture, weird, strange imagery, kind of, that that would fit. John's affect, at least as we, I think we see it, um, John is exiled late in his life. He he doesn't end up martyred like so many of the disciples. Tradition holds that he ends up on the island of Patmos, where he's given credit for writing the book of Revelation. And um, there are some other stories about him being boiled in oil or poisoned, but he survives those. And I. Think church tradition generally holds Michael that he dies of old age while exiled, essentially imprisoned on an island from which he can't escape, but he's not in a jail.
0: Yeah, you get very much the sense, and I think even revelation, of an older disciple who's seeing the church increasingly come under fire of persecution from the Roman state, and it is clear in the writing of that book that John is yearning for a time in which all things are set right, in which Jesus returns, in which the church can see what John has very much been seeing the whole time, and that's this whole other reality behind the reality. Uh, Really, uh, an important disciple, though, I'm going to be honest, I think probably for many of us, less relatable than Peter, maybe. Um, but I still think an important voice in the history of the church. Yeah,
1: and we want to make sure we don't give the impression that there's a softness in John. John is steel. I mean, John stands up and thunders away. The gospel of John is very much Jesus clashing with people. John has this prolonged section about the world and hating the world and the world hating us. And of course, the book of Revelation is is written in this deeply divisive um, cast in this deeply divisive uh, model in which the world and Jesus are at war, right. and and the result of that is undecided. But John is not a pushover. I I don't want anybody to get the sense that we're saying that John is soft because that certainly wouldn't be true. I. I see the man who ends up on Patmos is old and gnarled and tough, tough as a boot, probably. Well, let's go back then to Peter's family. Now we move to Andrew. Andrew's also a fisherman, Peter's brother. He's kind of the come and see disciple. He's the first one who makes that invitation. In fact, he brings Peter. um, He brings Jesus, the boy. You know the story about the boy who has the fishes and loaves and the feeding of the 5,000. It is Andrew who brings that young boy to uh, to Jesus, uh, it's possible that he was a disciple of John the Baptist, and then he sort of gravitates over, over as uh, he explores Jesus' teaching, as invited to follow him. Um, that, to my knowledge, Michael, is most of what we know about
0: him. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he's not – he begins, uh, I think, a list that we're going to find, Clint, of a lot of disciples who we – maybe know a little bit of their call, maybe we see a story of significance in the Scripture, but here we already see someone whose major play is actually to make the connection between who we know as Peter and Jesus, and really beyond that, we know that he goes along with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry.
1: Yeah, there is some interesting extra-biblical stuff about Andrew. The the story goes that he is – He is hung on an X, an inverted cross. He's tied to that. He's martyred. And then his body is being transported by ship where it uh, falls under a storm and there's a shipwreck. His remains end up in Scotland where miracles begin to happen and all kinds of stuff. And so there is this community of disciples that ends up formed in Scotland and hence If you go to Scotland, you will encounter places like St. Andrew. The church I served in Texas was named St. Andrew, and the symbol, our our symbol was a blue shield with a white cross on it, the St. Andrew cross. So if you see that cross, that's the symbol of Andrew, and that's the story that goes with
0: it. Yeah, I think as we get into these characters, Clint, it's worth maybe helping people navigate what we do with these early church history stories of the disciples. Because when you read scripture, Jesus is the one, almost without exception, for whom we see miracles happening. And you see a little bit in Acts of some miraculous healings. You certainly see demons being cast out. Paul survives a snake bite. So, it's not all to say that Scripture doesn't have a place for some of these, maybe you say, almost fantastical sort of elements in the story. But the early church very much collected stories of great renown of these individuals, and they were compiled in a variety of differing books and codexes, and it is not on accident that they didn't arrive in Scripture because the purpose of Scripture is to point us to Jesus Christ. But it's not to say that these stories either are or aren't history and what we understand history to be. What matters is they reveal to us men, and in some cases, especially as history goes on, women of faith whose actions and faithfulness to Christ resulted in beyond ordinary things, supernatural Events happening. And it's not worth getting caught into the did it happen or did it not happen. I think it's far more helpful to look into these stories like this and to say, yeah, the gospel has a way of working even beyond the death of this disciple who is faithful.
1: Yeah, and maybe we should have put this on the front end, Michael, but in a tradition like ours that doesn't have what we call saints, in other words, Mm -hmm. we don't really deify those characters in a way that puts them in a place of prominence other than the appreciation we have for their, their stories and their faithfulness. We don't consider them more holy than others. However, it would not be rare at all to walk into a Presbyterian church, which may be named St. Matthew's or St. Mm-hmm. Luke's or St. John's, and find some of these disciples – you know, symbolized in stained glass or or in art or in some other fashion. So even in our rather cautious tradition, we do have a way of looking to these men and um, in our own way expressing appreciation for their place in the story. Very much. So I think many of these next characters will go fairly quickly. Now we move to another brother. This is James, Mm -hmm. John's brother, also a fisherman, son of Zebedee. And the thing we could say about James, I think, is that he's in the inner circle. Whenever there's a story about Jesus mm-hmm. taking a smaller subset of the disciples somewhere, James shows up in it, and yet mm-hmm. we don't really get much of his story. We know some things about John. We know some things about Peter, who were also in that inner circle. James is always there, and that has to matter. Mm-hmm but there's not a lot of corresponding information about what he did or why he's there.
0: Right. And in fact, you might say, well, hey, pastors, what about the whole book that's named after the guy? And scholarship would say that we've got to be maybe a little tenuous about being able to trace that book directly to the disciple we have named James. But I think that's an important point that maybe can be named at this juncture of the conversation, is that Whether or not James wrote the book of James that we have in the New Testament, there is throughout this very early stage of Christianity, these amazing strands, these differing voices and perspectives of the faith that are completely captured in our New Testament. And this is what I mean by this. You have James, which is this, we're studying it right now in the Daily Bible study, this practical, hold no punch telling of the gospel. It is earthy and it's relatable. And if you aren't hit by it, you weren't listening to it. And then you have John, which is this more thoughtful, esoteric, maybe spiritualist sort of writing. And then you come into Peter and you have, once again, a very wise pastoral sort of move forward voice. And I think each one of these core disciples, they presented for the church differing ways of understanding and seeing Christ, and these things are not in conflict with each other very much. They're they're differing melodies that all come together to make a beautiful harmony. So, yes, we don't have a ton of stories about James particularly uh, sort of contributing. We don't have lots of long speeches. We don't have lots of text. But I think we still have in subtle ways ways that James impacted the church, certainly in this whole school of faith and practice that we see really written in and instilled in the Book of James.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, a fun story about James. Uh, there's a moment to kind of reinforce the idea that he and John um, have a have a strong spine. There's this village that has told Jesus they'd rather not have him there. They're afraid of causing trouble or something. And James and John come and ask Jesus if, they, if he wants them to call down thunder. And there's no indication that they have the ability to call down thunder upon them <laughs> and wipe out this village. But Jesus then calls them the sons of thunder. Sometimes they're referred to in the text as the th- sons of thunder, and James would be half of that, that couple. Um, Next, we'd find Philip. Uh, Philip is interesting. He recruits Nathaniel, who is sometimes also called Bartholomew. Uh, He challenges Jesus. Jesus is talking about the Father late in his ministry. And Philip says, you know, uh, just show us the Father and we will believe. And unfortunately, Michael, that's kind of Philip's one (laughs) claim to fame is that he asked Jesus for proof, and Jesus says... You've been following me all this time, and you you don't get it, Philip. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And unfortunately, his one moment in the spotlight is one of being rebuked. But, but that's the nature of the disciples in the Gospels, right? They're always sort of saying things and getting it mostly wrong. And then Jesus is correcting them, and certainly none of us are outside of that paradigm.
0: Yeah, no, and it is... Important to note, right, that the, the Gospels are very much written around this core group of disciples following Jesus, and it's not interested in teasing out all the relationships. So, yes, there's a time when Philip got it wrong, uh, but I'm sure there's lots of times when Philip got it right.
1: Yeah. So, next we go to Bartholomew, also in some lists called Nathaniel. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you could argue whether Bartholomew and Nathaniel are or are not the same person, for purposes of this podcast, they are. Uh, he, he's the one who, when told that they found the Messiah who is from Nazareth, he's reported to have said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So not a fan of Nazareth, not a fan of people from Nazareth. Uh, but the next day when he goes to see Jesus, Jesus says of him, this is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And this is a wonderful compliment. When If Jesus could look at you and say, you know, there's no deceit in this person. This is an honest person. This is a real person. This is a genuine person. That would be truly a, a wonderful gift that Jesus would give you. And um, there again, as as far as I know, Michael, that kind of all we have of his story.
0: Yeah, he later says in that same story, um, I, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And mind you, this is in the first chapter of John. In the other Gospels, like Mark, you don't get Son of God till way – people do not get who Jesus is. So, much credit to Nathaniel for that insight. Um, but of course, as John does in that Gospel, Jesus says to him, uh, you're going to see greater things than these. So Jesus says, yeah, you, you saw that right, but your mind's going to still be blown for what's to come.
1: Next, we talk about Matthew, sometimes called Levi. If there is an oddest disciple, Michael, this I, I'm, a case could be made for Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector, right. the absolute epitome of everything so much of the disciples would have been against. As Israelite men, as those who live under Rome's authority and occupation, they, they generally are not any fans. In fact, we're about to we'll meet in a few moments a man who is ready to try and destroy Rome. And, and here is Levi or Matthew, this tax collector, this collaborator, one who has probably gotten wealthy off of Roman authority exercised against his own people. He's considered by many of his day a traitor, probably well-educated, probably pretty wealthy that would have been typical for a tax collector, which, again, makes him stand out. He's arguably the most successful disciple. We don't know that, but that's a reasonable guess. And of of all the odd pairings, I think, in Jesus' inner circle, for me, that one might be the most.
0: Very much. Clint, in fact, I think we miss how odd this is. We we think of tax day, and and nobody throughout all time enjoys paying taxes. But it's a respectable career to work for the IRS, right? I mean, that's a it's a good job. You're a citizen doing your work for the nation, and everybody understands that nobody likes paying taxes. But that's a thing that needs done. That's not the case in the ancient world. It's not a person who's just trying to do the administrative duty of the government. It's someone who is personally benefiting off of raising tax to whatever level they see fit and in having the force of the Roman government to enforce that self-enrichment. And doing that against their people. Your own people. Yeah. yeah. No, you're, you're a sellout and you're getting wealthy because of it and you're doing it off to the backs of your own people. So – We maybe don't have the same kind of emotional charge to what the early readers and receivers of Scripture would have had, but this guy being in the 12 is repulsive. There's really no other word.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing. You know, he's sitting at his booth, and Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. And the text right here in Matthew says, and he got up and followed him. And we don't get a lot of Matthew stories— But there is that remarkable moment where Jesus looks at a person that everyone else hates and says, "I, I want you to come with me. And Matthew instantly recognizes something better than what he has, something better than money, something better than power, something better than prestige. And he leaves all of that at a moment's notice to go follow Jesus. And say what you will, that's impressive. Yeah. I, the, I think many of us would struggle in that moment to respond with that kind of willingness and faithfulness.
0: Yeah, scripture contains the opposite story. The rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit salvation? Jesus says, well, you've done all the things. You just need to leave your stuff behind and follow me. And he walks away unable to do that. Matthew is able to somehow do that in an instant. He's able to even leave the place of his enrichment and to go with Jesus onto a path of really poverty and uh want. And that is I think to him a huge credit.
1: Yeah, and keep in mind that Bible people argue about everything that can be argued about, but historically Matthew is given credit for the gospel that bears his name and as an educated person, as a, an intelligent person, that fits. And Very and much. again, there would be people who would want to argue about that. But for our purposes, that's him. And so not it. it on one hand, we don't get a lot of stories about Matthew.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: On the other hand, we get something of a flavor of who he was by how he tells the Jesus story and by how his gospel unfolds, much like we do of John, we we see in Matthew some of the things that are vitally important to him and the way he shapes the story to make the points that he feels are most important. And so, in a strange way, we know a lot about him for knowing not very much about
0: him. Yeah, that's well said.
1: So then we move to Thomas, uh, often called the doubter. Um, <laughs> yeah,
0: sometimes <that's>
1: a <laughs> called Didymus, the twin. For uh, the the best guess is he had a, a twin. Um, others have suggested maybe he looked like Jesus, although that's also said of another disciple. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, Thomas said some other good things when he when he sees the resurrected Christ. He says, "My Lord and my God." But unfortunately, that one story of him saying, "I can't believe it. I won't believe it." Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus says, "Do not doubt." And you know, for the next however many thousand years. <laughs> that's the label that sticks with him and i maybe he maybe he earns that maybe he doesn't but thomas is going to be forever associated with that moment where he doubts
0: i don't think you could be a christian uh through a whole lifetime and not hear one sermon on doubting thomas that's mm-hmm. going to be the sermon that i would most likely think that you would associate with him and you know maybe i'm reaching a little bit here clint but that's not the worst thing. Which one of us in life ever escapes doubt, right? Thomas had the ability to ask Jesus who's standing in the room. And in many ways, that text is, I think, intended to be comforting for those of us who receive it as a reminder that, hey, yeah, you don't get to be in the room. And so, your doubt is hard, right? He got to He got to have Jesus respond. And so, as you seek to be a person of faith, living in a world that's full of complexity and nuance and division, and faith can be hard in times of unrest and unsettledness, you know, have a little bit of grace for yourself because this guy gets named in the 12 and he's got Jesus literally standing in front of him. And so, yeah, if I'm Thomas, I probably feel bummed out when I'm in at the heavenly table and all the other disciples are chatting. But on the other hand, um, that's great good news for people who are trying to be real disciples, real people of faith.
1: And I think significant too, Michael, that in the aftermath of that doubt, Thomas issues what is, without a doubt, the strongest affirmation of Jesus in the New Testament. He says, my Lord and my God, and it's really Thomas who, for the first time in in the gospel, begins to introduce or begins to discern this the extent to which Jesus' words to Philip are true. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's Thomas who first gives voice to that idea that the resurrected Christ is the embodiment, the incarnation of God, of the Father. And so... Yes, Thomas doubts, and we should know that about him, but we should also know that on the other side of that doubt lives a profoundly deep and insightful faith that the rest of the New Testament then grows out of.
0: Yeah, we would all do well to be more like Thomas and to express our doubt and to admit our weakness and to recognize that we need Christ to invite us to, to, you know... Uh, reach into the truth of the gospel because without that, uh, we're going to be hopelessly lost on the journey.
1: The next disciple is another James, sometimes called the James, sometimes called James the Less, and that doesn't mean important though he's less pronounced in the story. It means younger probably, and so he's the son of Alphaeus. There's some speculation that he may be the brother of Matthew. I, I'm not sure where that comes from or how reliable it is. Um, There's also a tradition, a legend, that he is the disciple that looks most like Jesus, and therefore that explains why Judas then goes to kiss Jesus in the garden, because he knows that the soldiers wouldn't be able to tell, particularly in the dark, Jesus from James, and that they might arrest the wrong person. Again, I... As to how much of that is reliable, just know that it's out there and it's interesting. It is also held that he's a Nazarene, a, a religious commitment that means no alcohol, no haircuts, and no meat. Uh, it may be that he is of that kind of uh, very narrow tradition, but it may not. Well said. <laughs> Anything to add on James, he doesn't make much of an appearance. So then we come to Simon, again, I think an interesting disciple, not for what we know about him, but for what we know about his title. He's called Simon the Zealot. The Zealots are essentially a band of guerrillas or rebels that are very anti-Rome and willing to do violence generally, to protest or even rebel, that that they believe Rome should be overthrown. Rome occupies what they believe to be their sacred land, and they want them gone. And the zealots are always doing things like starting skirmishes, attacking soldiers. Now, we don't know Simon's role in all of that. We we do know that later on, Jesus says, we need a sword. And Simon says, here's two swords. Like <laughs> He might think it's time to go. Finally, the moment is here. But it's a... The very interesting person to have in the table hearing, love your enemies mm-hmm. and turn the other cheek, those things could not have come easily to Simon.
0: Right. Though I would encourage you to read the gospel through his lens for a moment, and you can also see how he gets there, because Jesus talks a lot about how this kingdom is passing away, and a new kingdom is coming. And if you read that just on its face to a zealot, yes, get rid of the current kingdom. We're ready to overthrow it. We're going to have a new king, which is literally the implication. So when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and you have this whole processional, I mean, surely Simon the zealot is excited, right? Because we're coming to the capital city. Jesus is getting hailed as the king of the Jews. I mean, we're gonna we're we're finally making it happen. And you've got to recognize that religion has always had nuance, Clinton. Maybe sometimes we let that flatten to history. There are people inside Jesus' circle who would vary remarkably in his willingness to take extreme measures to affect what he thinks is the religious good. And that that's all the way back to Jesus, that people are sort of living in that tension. And yet, I think your point is well made, we have to recognize that Jesus was able to hold Simon the Zealot, even though those zealous ideas wasn't what Jesus intended from the start.
1: Yeah, imagine how Simon feels when Jesus heals the centurion's son, or... doesn't speak out about Rome, instead fights with the religious leaders of Israel. And so, um, or imagine him sitting at a table with Matthew. We said this in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, the tension that must have been present when those two met for the first time. So Simon is a a fascinating footnote on the disciples, a man of potentially a man of violence, Uh, a man of anger, a, a man who sees the world in us and them and enemies, and lives beyond that in the ministry and ultimately in the sacrifice of Christ. And for those of us who are inclined to think in those terms, certainly a lot to offer. So then, um, almost done, we get to Jude slash Thaddeus slash possibly Judas, not the Judas you're thinking of, but possibly another Judas who was called something else, especially after the other Judas went bad. But um, probably most often known as Jude or Thaddeus, depending on which list you read, um, there's a tradition that he's the son of James. In fact, there's a reference that he's the son of James. It's not clear that that means James the disciple, but if so, that would mean that there's a father and son team within the disciples. And that would also make him the grandson of Zebedee, the nephew of John. He would then undoubtedly be the youngest of the disciples. Um, we don't, to my knowledge, we, we don't know much about him other than that strange possibility that he is family with some of the other disciples.
0: Yeah, one thing I've heard is that there's some thought that um, Thaddeus is actually a nickname that's given to him. Uh, because of the way that it plays in the original language, so that his name may have been Judas, that Jesus may have called him Thaddeus, or the disciples may have called him that. But once again, we're now reaching into murky waters. The text doesn't say it, and quite frankly, the gospel doesn't rise or fall either way. But here we have another person um, who is a follower of Christ.
1: And then the, in some ways, best known or certainly most infamous – Disciple, the one named Judas, Judas Iscariot. And, um, you know, it, it really, whatever else you could or couldn't say about Jesus, Judas, you're going to get to the point that he betrayed Jesus. And that's his legacy. That's the mantle that he wears. There have been those, Michael, that have tried to um, kind of redeem his reputation in saying that he understood he was doing something good. Maybe he thought if he forced the conflict, that Jesus would um move to overthrow Rome or that he would take his mantle as the Messiah in in that conflict but the scripture is not that kind the scripture does not have a mixed voice on Judas at all the the scripture sees Judas as a man who let his greed and his uh, personal desires lead him to betray the Son of God and deserving of all the um, negativity that goes with that.
0: Yeah, that's also a struggle, though, Clint, because it was also Jesus's path to walk. It's not to say that it had to be that way, but we couldn't imagine it not being that way, even the way that Jesus talks about the whole gospel. He knows that he's making his way towards the cross, and Judas's sin becomes an occasion for the greatest salvific work of all time. And you're right. Scripture does not speak with a unified, positive voice in any sense for Judas, and quite frankly, history through literature, through song. I mean, history dogpiles Judas as well. So he certainly has gotten a lot of criticism for that action. I, I think maybe the only thing worth saying is that Jesus seems to have known far ahead of what anyone else knew what Judas was about. And yet Jesus kept him in that circle. And I think it speaks to a kind of not just knowledge, but a kind of humility that Jesus has to submit to really what it means to be human. Surely, the Son of God, knowing what's happening, recognizing this character flaw, could have easily chosen, as we saw in the garden, let this cut pass for me. Jesus could have easily chosen another road that didn't involve this betrayal working, and yet Jesus submitted to it. And so, I think in in this whole meta story of what it means to be God's people living in this kingdom Jesus was willing to let this man's bad action for whatever motivation drove him to move Jesus on to the salvific work of grace for the whole world uh, it's unfortunate though that Judas's sin was the the thing that started that process
1: yeah and ironically in some ways that makes Judas's story perhaps the most accessible for Christians. That question that hangs over his, his narrative, what would it take mm-hmm. for me to turn my back on or betray Jesus? And for Judas, it's money. Maybe for us, it's something else. But there, there is a humility in reading the Judas story in such a way that we are willing to see reflections of ourself in it. And I think that's the way it's intended. Um r- Really, I, th- I think other than the gospel of John, is this true, Michael? Other than the story of John, um Judas may be the only other disciple that I can think of that we know the end of the story. We're told that he mm. can't come to terms with what he's done and he commits suicide either hangs himself or jumps off a cliff depending which story you read but they both say the same thing that um in in difference to in in a difference with the rest of the disciples who are often martyred for preaching or for serving he takes his own life again an act of what the scripture might consider selfishness or thinking only of himself and uh, unfortunately that betrayal and selfishness will be Judas' legacy as long as people read the story?
0: The fact that Jesus' disciples included a traitor is a significant point that we shouldn't rush beyond. When we talked in the sermon a few weeks back about the diversity of the disciples, we meant that in many senses, qualitatively, (laughs) that it's not just people of varying backgrounds. You might say that Simon the Zealot brings a, a maybe antithetical voice to the table as well, bringing sword when Jesus says that, you know, the the sword is not the path of the kingdom of God. But here you have someone who is chiefly about his own advancement, or if not his own advancement, a very selfish understanding of Israel's advancement depending upon how you read that. And so, when push comes to shove, Judas chooses himself. And I think we can all confess the reality that we, as humans, live out of that basic posture. In fact, as Reformed Christians, we maybe sometimes overemphasize that that sinful desire, that inward turning that we have. But it's an important part of the gospel because Jesus not only invited him into that circle, but ostensibly, the larger voice of scripture would say that Jesus had other choices available to him and he didn't make those choices. So let that stand as an example, as a cautionary tale, and let it also remind us of the grace that is on our call for us that we might be like the other disciples who, not having the gifts for ministry, not having the charismatic voice, maybe not even having the education, can still be witnesses to the grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah,
1: there's an interesting challenge that that lie in that, Michael. I think we are okay, we can can sort of resonate with the idea that the story of the disciples includes incompetence. It includes overconfidence. It includes ignorance. It includes bias. It includes hard-heartedness. And yet... What Judas forces us to face is that the story of the church, the story of us as followers of Christ, also includes darkness. Mm-hmm. It also includes betrayal, sinfulness, and harm. And th- that, is, th- that is a guiding word that we should use to always move forward with, um, with humility and with great care in the knowledge that we can do harm, that we can follow our sinful desires even to the darkest places that damage the the witness of Christ among us. So, friends, uh, there's some of the disciples' stories, what we know of them, uh, again, fascinating, that we don't know more. Michael, maybe one of the great takeaways is that Rather than tell us Mm -hmm. all about these men as if they were heroes, the scripture instead focuses on their ordinariness in order to show us what Jesus does with them ultimately. And again, there's a great lesson in that for us.
0: It's both what Jesus does with them, but it's also the fact that they were unable to see the thing that they later spoke to in the time that they lived with him. And that is absolutely essential to those who now seek to point to Jesus Christ with our own lives, confessing that we have not seen him at all. And that's on purpose, is that we see that the very disciples of Jesus, it wasn't the act of seeing Jesus that made them authoritative witnesses. That's not a fair statement. John would say that it is. But there's a sense in which it's the knowledge of God revealed to them in the resurrection of Christ that shoots them out kind of like a shotgun into the world. Differing voices, differing strengths, differing lives, and different endings to their stories. And yet, as they're sent out, they transform the world. And, and that is driven not by something inside them, but the spirit of Christ living in them.
1: Yeah, there are no superheroes in the faith. Okay. There are men and women following Jesus And what God does with those ordinary people through their faith and the gift of his spirit. And what a wonderful word for all of us who don't need to aspire to be anything more than who we are faithful to Jesus Christ.
0: We thank you for joining us for this conversation. Hope that you've been encouraged, challenged, and would love to see you again when we premiere the next podcast that happens every Wednesday, 9 o'clock Central Standard Time on Facebook. And we are glad that you've joined us from wherever you are today.
1: Thanks for your time.
0: Thanks, everyone.